me pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome this morning. I want to start by sharing a little story of actually something that happened this week. Um, there's a, a longtime friend of the family, a very dear friend of my mother's, and uh, somebody who used to live across the street from us growing up. And so I spent a lot of time with their family and their household. They spent a lot of time in my family and our household. They were kind of a part of the extended family, if you know what I'm talking about, those, those family that come around even during holidays. You know what I'm saying? And um, my mother's friend has been quite ill for a while. Um, she's had MS and uh, recently um, uh, has also gotten cancer. And it's, and it's terminal, it's pretty bad. Um, the doctors have given her some time till like mid-fall. Um, and, uh, and so it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a heavy time. It's a heavy time for my mom. It's a heavy time for this lady and all of her friends. And it's especially a heavy time for her husband and um, her son and daughter. They're grown, of course. They're, they're more like my age. But, um, but it's still a very heavy time. She's one of the, she's really like kind of the strong one in the family. So it's always tough to see the strong one go through things, isn't it? And um, just earlier this week, um, it had probably been, I want to say, five or six years since I'd seen this, uh, since I'd seen this family. And just earlier this week, um, I knew that, um, you know, that, that she didn't have much time left. Um, and so I went to visit her. And... Uh, it was really nice. I mean, we just sat and, you know, we talked about Broadway musicals and, you know, just kind of, um, you know, reminisced about our childhood. And I thanked her for being like a second mother to me. You know, you never really know. Like, I haven't talked to her for like six years, but I, I totally know that if something were to happen to me, I could totally rely on her for anything. Does that, you know, you know, you know what I mean? It's like you could call somebody. They're a part of your support network. And so I really expressed my appreciation to she and her husband for that. Um, to their son for for kind of being like a like a brother or a cousin or something like that to me, and um, and we were talking for quite a while, and they were even showing me like little YouTube funny YouTube videos and whatever, just kind of taking their mind off of what's going on, and um, and then I told them um, the central reason why I came. I said, um, well, hey, I I really wanted to visit, I really wanted to see you. It's been too long. Um, but I also know um, what the doctors have said and that, you know, you might not have that much longer. You know, it could be, you know, it could be that you have a couple more years or, or more, you know, who knows, you know, who knows, you know, sometimes the doctors are wrong, right? And I said, it, you know, but it could be less than what they've said. And I said, um, but I came to make sure that you knew how to have peace with God. And this family... Um, they're kind of a non-practicing Roman Catholics. You know, it's kind of like a cultural thing. And I understood that because growing up, I was a non-practicing Roman Catholic. I didn't go to church or whatever, you know. So she had a rosary by her bed. You know, it's just not something that her family thinks about all that often. But I could tell that she'd been thinking about it a bit more uh, at this hour in her life. And so, um, and so I said, um, and I, I just want to be clear, um, I, I don't necessarily mean um, that I want to make sure you know how to have, to feel like you have peace with God. I said, although that's important, <laughs> you know, I, I want you to feel that. I said, but, but what I want you um, to know is how to have peace with God from his perspective. What is it, what is it, what's required in order for you to have peace with your creator? 
And, uh, and so just, and it was, it was, it was kind of interesting because as soon as I said this, um, you know, there's all kinds of media, you know, iPads and TVs and whatever, and all of a sudden her son just turned the TV off and everybody was just laser focused on what was going on. And I, I, I tend to think that if I would have tried to have this conversation with them five, six, seven years ago, um, they wouldn't have been as receptive. I mean, they would have loved me, they would have kind of humored me or whatever, but they really wanted to hear what I had to say. And I was like, wow, I never, ne I don't know if I've ever had such a receptive audience for, for preaching the gospel. And I said, um, I just want to, I, I said, I, I want to say this as simply and as clearly as I can. And I said, um, what's required for you to have peace with God is two things, um, repenting and believing in the gospel. And I said, repenting, you know, it might, might not feel like, hey, well, how hard is that right now? You know, what do I got to repent of? You know, I can, I can kind of, I'm just laying here all day or whatever I said. But any part of yourself that's saying, I want to be the king, I want to be the leader, I want to be in charge and not God, you, you turn from that and you, you go the direction of Jesus. And it's not that we're not going to be weak and it's not that we're not going to mess up. You know, we mess up and then we turn back. We turn, we turn until we turn round right, you know. Uh, but, but I said, it, it requires turning to follow Jesus, not following your own way, not following yourself, not trusting yourself as your own leader and Lord. And then I said, it, then it, the second thing is believing the gospel. I said, that, sound, that might sound easy, but the gospel is so, is so extraordinary, it's hard to believe. I said, because what, what the gospel says is that God loves you so much. And I you know, looked at her husband and her son, I said, God loves you so much, God loves you so much, God loves me so much, that he took on human flesh and died the death that we deserve in our place. And believing in God is believing that I'm saved not because of the good things that I'm doing or not because of my you know, fine church record or not because of any of this stuff, but because Jesus saved me on the cross at Calvary. And, uh, I mean, their, their eyes were transfixed on what I was saying. And, um, and I said, so I just wanted to be clear. Now, I, I want to pray with you, but, um, but I, you know, I don't want to force you to do anything. I want you to just kind of think about that. And if you feel like there's any business you need to do with God, you know, um, as I leave or as you're praying on your bed at night, you can, you can pray, you can, you can tell God, you know. I said, in some ways, you can think of repentance as letting go of whatever's in your hand so that you can receive the free gift of eternal life, you know? Um, and, so, and so I explained that to him, felt like it was very clear. It was a very anointed um, interaction with them. Um, what a blessing. What, I mean, what, what a privilege. I went away from that interaction feeling like a priest, you know what I'm saying? Um, like not like this kind of priest, you know, like a, like a royal priest, you know, new covenant priesthood. What a... It's an unbelievable privilege to share the gospel with people, to be a midwife for somebody coming into the kingdom. And I don't know where she was. She was incredibly receptive in that moment, you know, and maybe she'd really been, you know, praying some prayers for the last few months or whatever. Um, she definitely had a softer heart than I'd ever seen. Um, not that they've been ever been anything but kind to me. But I, I just share that story to say, you know, right now, it might feel like a message about heaven or hell feels like a little bit like, mm, what does that matter? You know, like, I'm kind of worried about what's going on right now. Do any boys like me in high school? Or, you know, what, what, what job am I going to get? Or, you know, um, 
you know, what, what, is, what, is the, what does the kingdom of God have to say for my life right now? Um, but number one, we're never guaranteed another day. And number two, there will come a day. Hopefully, we all have a chance to, to kind of know that it's that near and to surround ourselves with, our, with, with loved ones and, you know, to have that, to have that slowed down opportunity. We're not guaranteed that. And there will come a day where that will be very important to you and maybe some doubts or some barriers that you might have previously had to accepting the gospel they'll feel kind of small in that moment and that's what it seemed like was going on with that family a few years ago um, <clears throat> I was working on InterVarsity staff and we had this retreat um, with several uh, of the IV staff and I was in this living room with a bunch of the younger staff, and we were having like a little bit of a debate about heaven and hell. And I bet Mikan was there; uh, she was on staff at the time. <clears throat> and uh, you know, uh, what's the nature of heaven and hell? What's it like? Who goes where? Does it last forever? Stuff like that. <clears throat> and um, then one of my friends and mentors, Dan Dodge, entered the room. And this man loves the Word of God. And after listening to our youthful angst for a few minutes. He chimed in with these words of wisdom. He said, hey, guys, there's a lot that we can't know about this topic, but don't throw away what you do know for what you don't know. Right? These words of wisdom, they just sort of washed over us. You know, don't throw away what you do know for what you don't know. In other words, based on the scriptures, there are certain things that we can know. For example, heaven means eternity with God and eternal joy. That's something we can know. And when the scriptures talk about hell, it's talking about eternal separation from God, the source of all light and life. Now, those truths are clear. They represent what we do know based on the biblical witness. And whatever disagreements that room full of InterVarsity staff had about what heaven and hell were actually like, if we can agree on those basic truths, and we did, it should have massive implications for the way we think about our lives, our ministries, and how we spend our time here on earth. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because isn't it the case that oftentimes our abstract theorizing about things that are unclear in Scripture take our attention and energy off of applying the things that are clear? I announced last week, and I, I sent a reminder in the email that I'm going to be preaching on the topic of hell this morning. And I wanted to give some advance notice because uh, it's a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic. It's a sad topic. Um, famous preacher John Stott says that we should never speak about hell without tears in our eyes. And I can only say for myself, I wish my emotions were that sanctified and tuned to the truth of God. But I think for myself, oftentimes, instead of having my emotions tuned to that reality, I, uh, I find myself avoiding the topic altogether. You ever do that? I mean, even in the church, we oftentimes feel embarrassed or reticent about the topic of hell. And I actually think the Anglican church, they, they believe the right things about this, but I, I actually think that we're particularly guilty about avoiding this topic. And, um, you know, maybe at best we find it to be, like, too heavy to discuss in polite company. And at worst, maybe we worry 
that it's a sadistic doctrine. Maybe that's what we're worried about. Over a century ago, one agnostic politician gave, gave free voice to these concerns. He didn't hold back. He said, Ladies and gentlemen, the idea of a hell was born of revenge and brutality on the one side and cowardice on the other. I have no respect, he said, for any human being who believes in it. I have no respect for any man who preaches it. I dislike this doctrine. I hate it. I despise it. I defy this doctrine. This doctrine of hell is infamous beyond all power to express. Brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning that I do not believe that this opinion is true. Because the doctrine of hell testifies to the justice of God. Just as Jesus' tears testify to his love and the cross of Christ testifies to both. But how can a loving God send people to hell? That's a good question. That's an important question. And in the Western world today, many are skeptical of the idea of hell. We like... You know, the God who hung out with sinners and, you know, says to forgive our enemies. You know, we latch on to the idea of love above all else. But this view is actually culturally bound. It's a culturally narrow view. Tim Keller points out that when he travels to the Middle East, he finds people who are crying out for justice. And few people have any problem with the idea of hell. What does offend them, however, is the notion of extending forgiveness to undeserving and love to our enemies. So when it comes to the way we view God, you know, it's like some of us lean in the direction of justice and some of us lean in the direction of mercy. And only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do we see both. I'm going to say more about this later. But I'm going to, I'm going to kind of try to take this slow this morning. And by that, what I mean is I'm going to preach a little longer than usual. Uh, and I ask that you pray for me as I speak on this sensitive topic. You know, it says in the book of Jude, verse 22, that we ought to have mercy on those who doubt. You know, it says that? We ought to have mercy on those who doubt. That should be the disposition of the church toward those who are wrestling with doubts. Because no doubt, there are people here this morning who have doubts about hell. Right? And I want to show mercy by taking it slow, by trying to be clear, and by pointing us to the Word of God. Now, if you've been coming to this church for any length of time, I hope you've seen that the Scriptures are full of hope, they're full of life, they're full of beautiful promises that proceed from the mouth of God. The Bible has plenty to say about hope and resurrection and new creation. But how does the Bible in general, in Jesus in, in, in particular, what, 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 what does it have to teach us about the doctrine of hell? Well, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning, so grab a Bible and buckle up. And we're going to split this topic into three sections. So first, I want to tackle three false ideas that people have about hell, three common false ideas we have about hell. Second, I want to present three permissible views of hell. And what I mean by permissible is that each can make a pretty strong case from Scripture in church history. Um, these, are, these are interpretations that have been around for a long while because um, they're rooted in the Word. And third, I want to talk about 
uh, what, all, what all this has to do with Jesus. You know, what does the existence of hell teach us about the nature of God? So let's get started first by talking about these false ideas about hell. The first false idea is that hell has nothing to do with Jesus, right? The idea that if the Bible does teach about hell, it probably comes from like the Old Testament or one of those weird books or something. You know, it's, it's, it's widely agreed, even among non-believers, that Jesus Christ is the most loving and merciful person that ever lived, right? I mean, just about everybody in the world would at least have him in like their top five. And of course, he said beautiful things, didn't he? Like, do not judge others, lest you be judged. But are we listening to what Jesus is saying there? In his insistence that we are not the rightful judges, we're not the rightful judges of the world, Jesus never denied that God is the rightful judge. In fact, he affirmed it again and again. He said that actually he himself, the God-man, will be the one who at the end separates the sheep from the goats. In Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and he's talking about his second coming here, and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So that's his judgment seat. He's judging them as the king. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on his left. No offense. Do you know that Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, who loved his enemies, he loved the foreigner, he loved the whole world to the point of death. That same Jesus said more about the topic of hell than all the other biblical figures combined. Did you realize that? He actually says more about hell than he does about heaven. Jesus is the, church, the church's primary theologian on the topic of hell, actually. Pastor John often says that when it comes to hell, it's as if Jesus kind of looked around at his apostles and said, I think I'm going to take this one. <laughs> and if Jesus' example teaches us anything, it's that hell is primarily a reality to be warned about more than a theory to be critiqued. It's a reality to be warned about more than a theory to be critiqued. He believed it, man. He wept over it, and he warned people about it. He said, our anger can lead us there. Whoever is angry with his brother, you know, if, if, if anyone's angry with his brother, they'll be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He warned us that our lust, that our sexual immorality can lead us there. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your entire body to be thrown into hell. And he said our unbelief can lead us there. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him, who believes in the Son of God, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's only Son. 
So not, I, I, don't, get, don't get the wrong impression. I'm not trying to say that Jesus preached hell out of a desire to like mess with us or like he somehow had this like sick fixation on it. He preached this message out of love. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The same passage in the Gospel of John said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It says that the world stood condemned already. And this brings us to the second false idea that people often have about hell. And that is the idea that God wants some people to go there. That God actually desires that. Some people believe that. As if God takes some sort of pleasure in condemning people. And friends, I believe this is a lie from the pit of hell. The scriptures clearly state that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all... All should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Hell was not even originally made for human beings. Matthew 25, in, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that it was prepared as a place for the devil and his angels. So the presence of humans there is, is sort of like a sad side effect of our rebellion. And God himself says in Ezekiel 34.11, a passage you'll hear me quote again because it's one of my favorite. He says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I have no pleasure, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what is God's pleasure? What is, he, what, what is he pleased about? He says that the wicked turn from their ways and live. And then he pleads with Israel saying, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? That's not what God wants. The fact that God takes no pleasure in condemning people I think is put on full display in our gospel readings from today. And I did a little bit of an odd thing by breaking it up and having a reading from Luke 13 and Luke 19. But I think you can see it's the two readings in Luke where Jesus is mourning over the city of Jerusalem. If you'll turn to Luke 13, 34. <clears throat> Jesus is mourning over the city. He's mourning over Zion, over the coming judgment upon Jerusalem. Why? Because the city rejected him as Messiah. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then listen to what he says next. He's speaking with the voice of God. He's speaking from the vocation of God. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He's talking about this, this long history he's got with these people, right? This long history he's got with Jerusalem. Really, Jesus, you, this finite being that's walking around? No, he's the incarnate son of God. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? It's just this tender maternal image, actually, isn't it? But he adds... And you were not willing. Right? You were not willing. Jesus was willing. They were not willing. And this is what led C.S. Lewis to say that on the last day, only one of two things will be said. Either we'll say to God, thy will be done. Or he'll say to us, thy will be done. Right? In other words, it's not so much that God rejects us, it's that we reject him. A generation before C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton wrote, Hell is a monument to human freedom. 
It's a recognition that our decisions have a significance that extends far down into the reaches of foreverness. In Luke 19, similar passage, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on the last week of his life, it says in verse 41 that he actually wept over the city. And I think this is a window into God's heart when it comes to judgment. He's pronouncing judgment over over them. And look at what's going on with his heart. He's weeping over them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it, it means city of peace. And so it's, it's not without irony that Jesus says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, the things that make for shalom. God incarnate visited Zion, and they knew him not. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The third false idea that people have about hell is that only some people deserve to go there. Right? Just like the really bad people, like Hitler and Stalin and stuff like that. But isn't the point of the gospel that we all need a savior? And, and, and what does our savior save us from if not eternal condemnation? Look with me at Psalm 14. It's on page 453. Psalm 14. We just sang it a few minutes ago. We'll get, our, we'll, get our, we'll get our psalm singing back together. We haven't been doing it for a while. It says um, in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. So he's, he's looking down. He's looking down from heaven. He's searching things out to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And then it says that they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Right? This is a picture of what some have called utter depravity. Not even one. They've all turned aside. Paul famously quotes from this passage in Romans chapter 3, and he adds famously, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all eaten from the tree. You know what I'm saying? We all know what it means to be selfish and to have hatred dwell in our hearts. C.S. Lewis says, you know, you know, sometimes the difference between one guy and another guy is, you know, one guy has more of an opportunity for evil. You know, so there's one guy, you know, because he's not very clever and he's not of noble birth, his anger problem only causes his friends to laugh at him. But another guy, because he is clever and he is of noble birth and he has access to resources, his anger problem causes the death of untold thousands. See, it's the same sin. It's the same thing that's dwelling in our hearts. But we need, we need to be reminded that only one person has ever been righteous. And we gain our right standing through him. So these three false beliefs about hell, that it has nothing to do with Jesus, that maybe God takes pleasure in condemning certain people, and that only some people deserve to go there rather than admitting what the gospel says, which is that, hey man, we all mess this up. We all need a savior, right? <clears throat> so next I want to... Um, I want to move to a different section, and I want to discuss three views on hell, what it's actually like. Um, and each of these views uh, makes their case from Scripture. Each has support from some you know, major names throughout church history. And uh, the first view is the literal view. The second is the metaphorical. And the third is annihilationism. 
And um, one scholar writes that the fundamental issue um, between these three is the issue of biblical interpretation, not biblical authority. In other words, all these people believe in the Bible, right? They're just trying to sort out what it's actually trying to say. Now, I'm going to zoom through this pretty fast this morning and just sort of summarize key points. But if you want to hear more, I recommend that you check out this book, um, if this is a topic that's on your heart, called Four Views of Hell. It's published by Zondervan. And uh, you'll notice that I'm focusing on three and not four, and that's just because um, I don't think that there's sufficient evidence for um, the, the Roman Catholic uh, view of purgatory. Um, <clears throat> so my goal this morning is not to convince you of any of these views. I simply just want to make you aware of relevant scriptures and interpretations, just because I kind of wish that I would have been made aware of these things. <laughs> um, and I also want to give you at least one warning about each of these views. Um, so if you'll just kind of like allow me for just like a brief while to put on a professor's hat more for several minutes, I promise I'll put my preacher hat back on. I know that you really want me to, but. <clears throat> and in the end, um, I hope we'll all heed my friend's warning not to throw away what we do know for what we don't know. That's not the point of this exercise. So uh, first, there's the literal view. This view sees hell as a place of eternal, consciously experienced torment of the condemned, usually involving fire and going on forever and ever. This is a, this is a very difficult view to stomach. Um, but it has to be said that this finds its, its roots in much of the New Testament imagery, like Jesus' description of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 that we'll be coming up to in a bit or the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. This was the view of Tertullian, of St. Augustine, of Jonathan Edwards, and many others. In fact, it's fair to say that this has been the majority position throughout church history. Um, and it's probably what comes to mind when the average person just hears the word hell. This is probably the, the view that comes to mind. However, it must be said that a lot of these popular ideas are just as rooted in extra-biblical literature. So um, the descriptions found in something like Dante's Inferno, for example, or some of the artistic depictions of hell or of purgatory that we see in the Middle Ages, these sorts of things have kind of worked their way into our sort of subconscious mental furniture, and they're there whether or not the Bible sort of spells things out in that much gory detail, which it doesn't. Um, <clears throat> these renditions often go far beyond anything we find in the Bible, and frankly, they can be really disgusting and vindictive in all the ways that that agnostic politician hated um, at the beginning of a sermon. And so my warning about the literal view is that if we accept it, we just have to be careful to separate it from these human imaginings, from these additions that have come over the years. <clears throat> now the key difference um, from the metaphorical view is that the literal view tends to take the images of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth in a literal way. Um, but let's take a moment to consider the merits of the metaphorical view. And um, <clears throat> this view um, was held by such giants as John Calvin and C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham. It actually shares a lot with the literal view. They both say that hell will involve real misery and that the individual will experience in some form or another um, They'll, they'll experience this, this reality forever and ever. Um, 
However, the metaphorical view interprets the biblical imagery in just that way, as, as imagery. William Crockett writes, um, the writers of the New Testament are not concerned so much with the exact nature of hell as they were with the seriousness of coming judgment. He says these images are meant to express the seriousness of the judgment that was to come. For example, the fact that uh, we're dealing with metaphors and not hard facts can be seen in our reading from the book of Jude. Turn with me there if you would. Um, it's that short little book at the end of the New Testament just before Revelation, page 1027. It's probably the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. I'll just say that as you're heading over there. <laughs> uh, in fact, um, you can kind of tell it's a heavy book. Um, it's a short but heavy book. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you had never heard that name outside of the song by the Beatles. Um, Jude says a lot about final judgment, and there's a lot of vivid pictures in it. Um, twice he refers to the imagery uh, of eternal fire in verses 7 and 23. But in verse 13, if you notice, he refers to hell um, in terms of utter darkness. Utter darkness. Both of these images are also used by Jesus in the Gospels. But here's the question for the literalist. How can a place be characterized by both a blazing fire and utter darkness? See, aren't these images in conflict? I mean, if there's a fire, how can it be completely dark? Now, this conflict may cause some internal problems for the literal view, but it doesn't for the metaphorical. Again, Crockett writes, the New Testament depictions of heaven and hell are symbolic pictures, not itemized accounts of eschatological furniture or end times furniture. He's saying that's not what's going on here in the scriptures. Clearly, we are at least to some extent in the realm of symbolism and not literalism. Even the word hell has symbolic origins. Um, the Greek word Gehenna, that's mostly most, most often translated hell, um, um, comes, it's, it comes from the Hebrew word, the, the valley of um, Genom, which is a smoldering trash heap just outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And uh, the reason why the Jews came to view this valley as an accursed place, a place to burn their trash, was because it was on that site that some of the wicked kings of old had sacrificed their children to idols. And so this was a bad place. This was an inauspicious place. It was smelly and hot and unclean, and no one would have wanted to spend extended time there. And so when Jesus says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your entire body to be thrown into Gehenna, he was saying, beware, or on the last day, you might end up in the cosmic version of this accursed garbage heap. Right? So all things considered, a good biblical case can be made for the metaphorical view of hell. And the fact that most of the imagery seems highly symbolic should keep us from being too dogmatic about um, the precise nature of hell. However, and here's my warning, sometimes the metaphorical view is used to soften the reality of hell. And when we do that, the ironic thing is, is that we're actually failing to pay attention to the metaphors, right? This is not what Jesus had in mind. Would he use images of fire and weeping and darkness unless he was either being literal or, or warning us of something very terrible? No, he would not. So those who hold a metaphorical view need to be careful not to blunt the seriousness of Jesus' warning, which can cause the church to fall asleep at the wheel, really. 
So we've looked at the literal and the metaphorical views of hell, and now thirdly, we'll discuss the annihilationalist view. This is the view that those who are condemned at final judgment may suffer for a while, but they're ultimate, they'll ultimately cease to exist. Uh, my guess is that many of you have never heard this position, uh, but the biblical case is more compelling than you might think. Um, for example, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, that is God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Right? In other words, he seems to be saying that at some point the condemned will be destroyed, both body and soul, in hell. And this really fits with Paul's language, since he often speaks in terms of eternal destruction. Destruction, that's a word that Paul uses a lot when he talks to end times. Likewise, the book of Revelation calls the lake of fire, which we alerted to earlier, it calls it, uh, alluded to earlier, calls the lake of fire the second death. And so the annihilationists, you know, assume this is talking about complete annihilation. Now, this view was held by uh, a decent number of Jewish rabbis, even in Jesus' day. I didn't realize that until my most recent research, um, particularly uh, of the Hillel school. This was a very common view. Um, there's also evidence for it among some of the earliest and most prominent church fathers, um, like Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus, who's my favorite, and even some passages from Athanasius, who was instrumental in forming the Nicene Creed. There seems to be hints of this view, at the very least, decent hints of this view in all three of these people. However, annihilationism uh, mostly died out after St. Augustine, around 400 AD. And that's because he was a literalist and he was just super brilliant and super influential. Uh, if you've never read any St. Augustine, do yourself a favor. He definitely knew the Lord. Um, but in recent years, there's actually been a resurgence of this view. Uh, among many modern evangelicals like John Stott and Clark Pinnock. And today, it's not uncommon for you to find an article about this, even in a popular publication like Christianity Today. Another name for this view is conditional immortality. Stick with me. Because the argument is that the Old Testament never claimed that, hu that the human soul is immortal, and that that actually came from the Greek notion. It's a Greek notion, not the Jewish one. It came more from Plato than it did from Moses, right? Um, why is this important? Because if the human soul is immortal, then it has to go somewhere forever, right? It lasts forever. But if only God is immortal, as it actually says in 1 Timothy 6.16, then human immortality is conditional. It depends on whether God grants it to us or not, all right? Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 2. I'm not going to call out the page number for that one. Genesis 2. And um, we see in verse 7 <clears throat> that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the first human didn't exist. He did not exist until God gave, gave him life. And as we read on, we learn that, that human life is, con continues to be contingent upon God. Look down at verse 16 where God says to Adam, You may surely eat. So notice 
I mean, you know, when it comes to the fall, that God was actually being very permissive here. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But, and verse 17 says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what happens when they eat the fruit? Well, if you flip to Genesis 3, just one page over, Genesis 3.22, we see that God sends them out of the garden for this reason. He says, lest the man reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. This seems to be the sense in which whatever state that Adam and Eve had found themselves in at that point, God didn't want them living forever in that state. Commenting on this passage, Athanasius writes, Since Adam and Eve derive their being from God who is, they should be everlastingly bereft even of being. In other words, they should be disintegrated and abide in death and corruption. Now this sounds a lot like annihilationalists who say that human beings are not inherently immortal but instead have conditional immortality. We need to give... Uh, you know, excuse me, we need God to give us resurrection bodies one way or another. We need God to give us resurrection bodies if we're going to live forever. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three that this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Jesus' resurrected body is the prototype, right? That this, Im- that this mortal body must put on immortality. It's like clothing. It's coming upon us. We don't already have it. We need to put it on. Or think of John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, they're the ones who will not perish but be granted eternal life. What about those who believe in them? Will they have eternal life? The annihilationist says no. Now at this point we might be thinking, but what about all the images of eternal fire? What do they do with that? Well, first they point out that the purpose of fire is to consume whatever it's burning until that thing is actually burnt up. And second, they say that eternal refers not to the duration of the suffering, but instead to the permanence, to the irreversibility of God's judgment. That's often the way, actually, that eternal and forever are used in Scripture. Um, If that sounds like a stretch, turn with me to Isaiah 34. One more passage on this page 595. Spend a little longer on this one because it's probably the most foreign. Page 595, Isaiah 34. In this passage, the prophet speaks of God's judgment of the nation of Edom. Isaiah 34.10 says that night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. Now notice that Isaiah is, is, I almost said that like John would have. (laughs) Isaiah. Um, Notice that Isaiah is using both the image of fire and the word forever, right? So does this mean that if we hop on a plane right now and head to the Middle East, we'll still see smoke rising up from Eden? I mean, he said forever. Obviously, that's not what he's saying. The image of smoke rising up forever is symbolic of this nation's irreversible destruction. I mean, the land is laid waste. That's his point. And we know this because the second half of verse 10 tells us so. It says, from generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. 
So again, the emphasis is on the permanence of the effect, not the time span of the fire or the, conscious, the consciousness of their punishment. So like the literal and the metaphorical view, the annihilationist um, believes that one day Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats, the redeemed from the condemned, and the effects of that judgment will stand for eternity. That's something that they all agree on. However, it's unique in its position um, that they believe that the torment will not last forever. At some point, either right away or after some time, the condemned will cease to exist. This is the second death. One scholar writes, if everything is to be renewed, there cannot be some dark pocket of unending torment and rebellion against God, led by the devil and his minions coexisting with this new order. So that's, that, that's their claim about the new creation. However, um, the traditional, the literal view brings up some good points about this. Matthew 25 seems to, seems to balance. Just like there's going to be eternal life in heaven forever, there's going to be eternal um, you know, eternal punishment forever. You know, it's kind of like, almost like, oh, if one, if one is like real and it's going to last forever, what about the other one? Um, and, and really, uh, if you're sympathetic to this position, I think it's hard to be dogmatic because it has been a minority view throughout the history of the church. I mean, brilliant minds have read the Bible for thousands of years, and yet this, this position sort of fell off the interpretive grid for a while. Um, so if you hold this view, it should probably be held with humility. Um, you know, the second largest Christian church in the world, the Eastern Orthodox Church, holds no set theory on hell because they see, uh, you know, that much of the, these interpretations, these varied interpretations have merit to them. And so they don't set it down on, as an exact set doctrine um, what, what the people should believe about that. All right. Preaching hat. Thanks for hanging with me there a little bit. Um, I want to take a minute to summarize before I go back to considering um, what all this has to do with Jesus. We've considered the topic of hell. We began by stressing the importance of not throwing away what we do know for what we don't know, and I've tried to refute some false ideas that people commonly have about hell. We've looked at three interpretations of hell and considered what can be proven from the scriptures on this topic, and the answer seemed to be, Probably less than some of us think, but more than many of us want to admit, right, in terms of what can be approved, uh, proved about this topic. Less than some of us think, but more than some of us want to admit. But each of these three views, um, uh, in each of these three views, maybe the most important commonality seemed to be that hell is a terrible reality that involves separation from God. It's irreversible, and it lasts forever. Its effects last forever. Actually, um, I think the doctrinal statement for InterVarsity that's hanging out on the wall out there um, puts it pretty clearly and succinctly. It says that we believe in the victorious reign and future personal return of Jesus Christ, who will judge all people with justice and mercy, giving over the unrepentant to eternal condemnation, but receiving the redeemed into eternal life. I wish my emotions were tuned to the truth of God, because that's a statement with quite a lot of magnitude, is it not? I mean, and the number of sheer mentions that Jesus gives about hell, I mean, we ought to know that this is, this is a basic doctrine of Christianity. You know, as we wait for Christ's return, this is something for all Christians to embrace. And I ask you this morning, have you embraced this call to preach the gospel? You know, do you care about the lost as Jesus cared about the lost? Are you willing 
to love somebody enough to warn them about the reality of hell because Jesus did. You know, one of the consistent characteristics of false teachers in the Bible is that they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There are people today who will deny hell or teach universalism, and they're false prophets. That's false prophecy. Jude says that evangelism involves snatching people out of the fire. And that sounds like some pretty serious business. And even with all that's said, I know there's probably still a lot of questions I didn't address this morning, like what about those who have never heard about Jesus? Or what do we make of those passages that seem to imply that some will suffer more than others? And we can address those another day. But for now, um, I just want to tell you the pillow that I rest my head on at night with this. Because if I'm honest with you, the doctrine of hell was probably the most disturbing doctrine for me personally. The thing that was hardest for me to come into Christianity. That's, that's uh, you know, when, when, I, when I came to faith as an adult. That's common for people too. I think, I think also Christianity's sexual ethics is, is up there on the list as well. Um, but... Um, the place that I lay my head on, uh, the pillow that I lay my head on at night is that the one who humbled himself and died for us is the one who gets the final word. You know, that the nature of Jesus that we see in scripture, it's like, I totally trust Jesus to be the judge. You know, I'm glad I'm not the judge, but such a person must know more about justice than I do. Right? Maybe there's things that aren't clear to me or they feel funny or I, I don't know if I trust them, but such a person must know the parameters of mercy in a way that I have no conception. So I trust him to be my judge, the judge of my loved ones and anyone else for that matter. Earlier I mentioned that when it comes to the way we view God, some of us sort of lean in the direction of justice and others toward the direction of mercy and that it's only in the cross of Jesus Christ that we find both. Because the gospel is where God's love and God's justice meet. It's where God's ju- love and God's justice kiss one another. It's like the song that we often sing before the throne of God above. It says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This idea that God the just is satisfied. What, what's satisfied within God? His own just nature. How is it satisfied? Well, here's the thing. God is completely just. God is completely holy. There's no sin in him whatsoever. And so when we desecrate ourselves and we desecrate where we live, we can't be with him forever. God is completely holy. He's completely just. He's not going to go against his nature. He's not going to just sort of turn a blind eye to human sin and rape and rebellion and war and hatred and racism and all this other junk that we bring to the table. God will not abide that. God is a just God. So what does it mean when when it says that God the just is satisfied? It means that Well, this just God, this incredibly just God also eagerly desires to be merciful to us. And even though it looks like God's justice has sort of like painted him in a corner, like what am I going to do now because I'm, I'm holy and they're not. I'm just and they've perverted my justice. I've kind of painted myself in this corner. How do I get out of this? Well, Jesus is so just, he's, he's, he's so just 
that there has to be punishment, that there has to be some kind of recompense, that there has to be some kind of reckoning for sin, but he's so loving that he takes that reckoning, he takes that justice, and he dies, he, he puts it on his own shoulders, and he dies in our place. John Stott says this, he says, the fullest expression there's ever been in the history of the world on the being of God is the cross. On the cross, the holy love of God blazes forth. Mercy and justice embrace one another on the cross because God in his justice condemns the sinner and in his infinite love, he bears the condemnation himself. It's, it's, like, um, it's like God's justice and love meet but it's in such a way that somehow he's able to extend his love to the world instead of his justice, that he's making this offer. So really, really there are two hells. There are two hells. All of us must inevitably embrace one or the other. There's the hell that God himself, that God the Son himself experienced on the cross. And there's the hell of God's judgment on the last day. Christ faced hell the fire of the whips i mean if you remember the entire land went dark and he hung there in the god forsaken darkness and he became a curse i mean isn't that a shocking thing to say but that's what the bible says he took the curse for us so that we would never have to go to this accursed place called hell so there really are two hells and all of us must inevitably embrace one or the other. Do we choose to meet the inevitable justice of God that we find in Gehenna, in eternal punishment, or do we choose to embrace the God who satisfied His justice in His loving, merciful, sacrificial Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? There's someone here today who needs to hear this message. There's someone who knows this, who believes it, but they haven't come to Christ. And I warn you in love, and all of Scripture warns you, and Jesus weeps for you and says, how often would I have gathered you? How often would I have gathered you? Will you or will you not? Amen.